0: excited to be here to do the second part of Identity. It's Jacob, Joseph, and David. And before I start, let's just quickly pray, because I need you, Lord God, to bless the speaker tonight, that there would be um, words of wisdom that come from your throne room, Father God, that your spirit might move. I pray that everything that comes from my mouth, Father, to the ears of the hearers would be... uh, that which you have ordained, Lord. And I just pray blessing over um, all the people that are here in Jesus' name and online. Amen. 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 So last week, we looked at the story of Jacob. We took an in-depth look at Jacob's life. He deceived his father Isaac. He deceived, or I should say he betrayed his brother Esau to obtain the inheritance blessing. That is something that comes down to the eldest son in the Hebrew culture. He encountered God at Bethel uh, while he was on his way out to another, an area from his home. He saw angels coming and going from heaven to earth. And then his second encounter with God during his life, he got, uh, I guess, an, an angel picked a fight with him and he wrestled for the entire evening and into the morning until Jacob held on so tightly that the, and he, he actually Asked for a blessing from the angel, wouldn't let go of the angel until he blessed him, so he was blessed. In the process, his hip was dislocated, so he now would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And in that process also, his name was changed from deceiver or usurper to Israel, which is prince with God. Jacob becomes the father of 12 men who become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they multiply to create the entire Israelite nation. Hmm. So here we are. Tonight we're going to look at Joseph, who is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and then King David. So let's jump right in. The story of Joseph is actually one of my favorite in the Bible. I love the whole process from the pit to the palace. Uh, It it speaks volumes to me in my life when I read the story of Joseph. The dreams, uh, the pit, wrong attitude sometimes, the prison, the palace, everything speaks volumes to me. And every time I read it, I feel like I find something new. The story of Joseph spans... Uh, in the book of Genesis spans the chapters 37 to 50. So, our plug for reading our Bible this year is read that story. It's a good one. Uh, Joseph was the second youngest son of Jacob. And he was the favored son of Jacob. Now, if you remember... Uh, Last week, we talked about Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, favoring him over the older brother, Esau. And Isaac favoring Esau over Jacob just because of personality things and how things were going in the household. But this time, Jacob favors Joseph. You would think he would know better by now. Favoring one child over another... He should have known, right? He should have had the idea about what happens when you favor one child over another. But it seemed like it ran in the family. Abraham favored Isaac. Isaac favored Esau. Rebecca favored Jacob. And now we have Jacob favoring Joseph. Jacob also favored Joseph's uh, mother, Rachel. He, was, um, he wanted to marry Rachel before he married her older sister, and he was actually deceived into to uh, marrying the older sister, and got back what he was doing to his own in his own family with his own uh, father and brother, but that's a whole nother story. So this is the Joseph, if some of you remember years ago, who gets the amazing technicolor dream code, If you remember that play, Joseph is given a robe by his father Jacob, and it's made of many many colors. It is the envy of all his brothers. At the time of the story, Joseph has 10 older brothers who know beyond a shadow of a doubt how much their father favored this brother. And they hated him for it. He also had one younger brother whose name was Benjamin. And it's my feeling that Joseph knew his father favored him greatly. And I believe he struggled through his life with pride, self-righteousness, not to mention possibly entitlement, and, arrogance. and we find that as we read his story. With all that, Joseph was a unique leader. And as soon as his journey starts, he finds favor wherever he is. But he truly can't find himself and fulfill his mission until he takes this long journey of becoming who God called him to be, not who he thought he was. Only after many years can he become not just his father's favorite, but the one who God wants him to be so that he might save a nation many nations joseph actually relates two dreams to his family to his brothers and his father one the first one to his brothers and the second one to everybody we need to know that in the hebrew culture dreams were understood by families the Hebrew language is a pictorial language. So they understood the symbolisms of dreams and visions. They understood what those things meant. There, no explanation was needed in the family. Genesis 37 opens with Joseph's story. And in Genesis 37:1, it says, "Jacob continued to live in the land of Canaan where his father had lived, and this is the story of his family. Joseph, a young man of 17, took care of the sheep and goats with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Those are two concubines of his father. He brought bad reports to his father about what his brothers were doing. Interesting, right? Typical of a little brother. He's tattling on the older brothers. So whatever they did wrong, he went and told dad. No wonder they hated him on top of being favored. So Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Joseph actually says to them, listen, I had a dream. We were all in the field. We were tying up sheaves of wheat, so they're, they're harvesting the wheat, and my sheaf got up and stood up straight. Yours formed a circle around me and bowed down to it. And the brothers, hearing this, say, do you think we're, we are going to be a king and rule over us? And his brothers hated him even more. Then Joseph had another dream in verse 9. He didn't think he learned the first time by their response, but he tells them again. And this time it included the mother and father. He had a dream in which I saw, it says, I had a dream, another dream in which I saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to me. He also told the dream to his father and his father scolded him. What kind of a dream is that? Do you think that your mother, your brothers and I are gonna come and bow down to you? Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept thinking about the whole matter. That little verse there reminds me of when Mary pondered those things about Jesus in her heart. She remembered those things until Jesus grew. And the same thing happened here. Jacob remembered those things that Joseph said. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the song that Jim sang tonight. Again, last week it was um, the Revelation song and how creation sings, will hear creation sing the praises of God. Tonight, Psalm 103 says, the Lord will redeem our life from the pit. And that's what we're going to talk about, because Joseph knew a lot about a pit, okay? Because of their hatred, Joseph's brothers, because of their hatred from him, they actually plan plan to murder him. And his life is spared only through the intervention of his eldest brother named Reuben. And then the fourth eldest brother named Judah. Um, They don't want to have him killed, but they they kind of want to get him out of the the limelight here. So Reuben, Reuben suggests that they throw him in a pit leave him there for a while, and Reuben's idea was to go back and get him and bring him home after the brothers had left. That doesn't happen. Judah actually suggests selling him to uh, a caravan of traders that was was actually coming by. Judah will play a key role in Joseph's story many years down the road in the restoration and redemption process of of his brothers to him. It's almost as, as if the brother Judah dealt with a whole guilt thing of selling his brother, and it comes around full circle, and we'll look at that. Sometimes in life, we're wounded emotionally. Sometimes it's a lifelong wound that, that never heals. It almost feels like when you have, a, you have a bad cut, or maybe you had surgery, and you, you had stitches, Years later, that wound, even though it's healed, still has a soreness to it, or, or, or some sort of, maybe a, there's a swelling there around a, a joint that was, that was uh, operated on. Those wounds are still there. We know they're there. We have scars for some of those, and they still cause pain even though they're healed. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes. We know that Jacob was wounded by the man or the angel of the Lord who touched his hip socket, put it out of joint. Some translations say it was dislocated and he limped for the rest of his life. We might ask how Joseph was wounded. He's got no physical wounds like Jacob did. He didn't limp and he didn't wrestle with an angel. Joseph's wounds couldn't be seen. They were those emotional wounds and the pain was there regardless of anyone being able to see them. We all know that emotional wounds can be as painful and sometimes debilitating, or more so than physical wounds. They're wounds that sometimes take much, much longer to heal. Those, those things that cut to the core, that, that hurt our heart. Some scholars put Reuben at almost... Uh, 27 years older than Joseph when he was thrown into the pit. And Judah, about 10 years older. So if Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery, Judah would have been 27, Reuben would have been almost 44 years old. He was a man. He had experience behind him. Joseph was wounded by the very ones who were closest to him. Those who should have understood him or at least tolerated him And protected him. But it was his brothers that wounded him deeply. He goes through numerous trials and tests. He's thrown into prison. He's falsely accused and imprisoned again. But Joe rises like cream to the top every time he's thrown into prison. Why? Because God's hand is on him. There's no doubt that he has favor from God. And I believe after the whole ordeal with being thrown into the pit and realizing how much his brothers truly hated him, that they wanted to kill him, that he starts pressing into God in a way maybe that he didn't before. Joseph had so much favor on him that every time he was in prison, the prison keeper, those who, the keeper of the prisoners, didn't have to worry about anything concerning any of the prisoners. They put him in charge to take care of all the needs, everything that the prisoners had to take care of during the day, and there was no worry on the prison guard's mind because they knew Joseph was going to take care of it. Interesting, right? He's in prison, yet he's put in charge of all the prisoners. Let's fast forward. Joseph is in prison with two prisoners of the pharaoh of Egypt, a baker and a cupbearer. And we know a cupbearer is one who serves drinks or wine to the pharaoh. Sometimes they need to taste the wine or food to make sure it's not uh, poisoned, make sure that the king is safe or the pharaoh is safe. So one night, the baker and the cupbearer have dreams that they don't understand. And our dreamer, Joe, deciphers the dreams for the two of them all the while giving glory to God as the only one who truly interprets dreams. He also correctly tells them which one would be restored to his position in service and which one was going to be hanged. When the baker is restored to service, as Joseph said, Joseph, in his humanness, just like we do, reaches back and says, Hey, when you go up to see Pharaoh, remember that I'm here and remember that I, I told you your dream. And that things went well for you. For the moment, he forgets who he is again and that God's protecting him and taking care of him. He tries to be God's little helper, just like Rebecca last week when we talked about Jacob. She tried to make things happen for Jacob. As it happens, the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph. And in chapter 41 of Genesis, it opens with the words, after two whole years, Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph had to wait two whole years after trying to get the help of men so that he could be released from prison. We know that man makes his plans, but God orders his steps. God needed to spring Joseph in a supernatural way, for his own purposes to be fulfilled, not Joseph's. So don't ever think that God has forgotten you. You might feel like you've been set aside, that God's not paying attention. He's waiting for the perfect moment so that everything is in line, all the pieces are in place to break you out of prison and to put you into that destiny and on that path of life that he has for you. Pharaoh had some dreams, and when the cupbearer finds out that Pharaoh had dreams that nobody could interpret, a light bulb goes off in his mind. He remembers Joseph. Joseph is brought up, and he tells Pharaoh what the dreams mean. What we need to pay attention to is not so much Pharaoh's dreams right now, because that's a whole other message, but that Pharaoh called Joseph up from prison. Joseph is a lifetime prisoner at this point. Pharaoh never met Joseph, but he believed every last word that Joseph spoke. Not only did he believe the words that Joseph spoke, he took into consideration the solution that Joseph had for the problem of famine that Pharaoh had dreamed of, and Pharaoh actually said, you know what, Joseph, you're so wise, I think you need to do this. He puts Joseph second in command of all of Egypt to take care of things while a famine was coming. There was no way to test the interpretation that Joseph is giving to Pharaoh. There's no way to see if it's gonna happen. Time will tell. We find out when we read the story that it's seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. So not only does the seven years have to start and the harvest has to come and abundance has to come before anybody can actually test Joseph's interpretation, they've got to wait and see, are we really going to have a famine? Because this guy's putting grain away. Because Joseph knew God, and in knowing God, he knew himself to a degree that God was able to open doors of favor in his own life, even blessing in the prison, and allowing a pharaoh of Egypt, he being Hebrew, a pharaoh of Egypt, believed everything he said God told him and the solution that God gave him. I believe that Joseph was so familiar and intimate with God that he basically felt okay, had faith enough to put his own life On the line, speak to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh what he should do about this problem. Joseph knew by the Spirit of God that everything that he said was true. Only by a miracle of the Spirit of God and knowing who we are in Christ would anything ever similar to this happen in today's day. Think about it. Somebody says to us, uh, somebody's interpreting a dream for us here at Grace and Peace. Then we get a job in the White House, and we tell the president, oh, this person I know interprets dreams, and they'll interpret yours. So they do. Then the president makes that person vice president over the United States. Like, think about that. That, that seems ludicrous, right? That, those kind of things don't happen in the natural. Add to it that Joseph was a prisoner. But Pharaoh heard the anointed word and interpretation that God gave Joseph, believed it, believed the solution, that it sounded good to Pharaoh, and he put Joseph in charge. I would say that that would be supernatural provision for Joseph, a miracle that the Pharaoh would take under consideration what Joseph said, a great exploit. Like it says in Daniel 32, the people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. Some translations say that they will carry out great actions. Joseph took action in this, in this situation. His was a great exploit. He had faith in God. He knew his God. And the two years that he waited for the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh about him, he became even more fully known by God himself. And in that, he was able to know who he was and what he was supposed to do, why he was alive. I believe he kept pondering the dreams that God gave him those many years ago, thinking something's got to change here. God said this is going to happen, and I don't see it yet. So Pharaoh promotes Joe, and he can see that the word of the Lord was coming to pass. We can look at Psalm 105, 16 to 21. Verse 16 says, Moreover, he called for a famine in the land, meaning God himself. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent for a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons. Verse 19 is is what I want to focus on. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent him, released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and, all rulers of his, and ruler of all his possessions. Verse 19 again says, until the time that his word came to pass. Until the time that whose word came to pass? God's word. Until the time God's word. What word? The two dreams that Joseph had about his family bowing down to him. The word, those words in that, those dreams of the Lord tested him, tested Joseph. Everything that he had gone through in his life were tests because of those words that came to pass or were coming to pass. In the Amplified, uh, verse 19 says, the word of the Lord tested and refined him. He was tested and refined by the, the word of the Lord that came across those decades to test him and try him. Proverbs 17 says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. So not only does the word of the Lord test us, the Lord's testing our hearts with those words. We can read it this way. Until the dreams that God gave Joseph came to pass, God's word tested him over and over and over again. Until when? Until they actually came true and Joseph saw them. After what would have been 10 to 15 years, in and out of prison, all the while Joseph's being tested and he's passing those tests. How do we know he's passing those tests? Because God's favor stays on him throughout his life. There was still something missing, though. Joseph received not what he was after, because at this point, he just wanted to go home. He wanted to go back to see his father and his brothers. But what God wanted came to pass. It was God's plan that was unfolding in his life. Pharaoh put a ring and a robe on Joseph and set him up as second-in-command of Egypt. And everyone in Egypt was commanded to bow to Joseph. But it was at this moment that Joseph actually comes to himself. We could say he really found himself. He found his place, the place that his dreams spoke of, that of being bowed down to, ruling and reigning. But unlike, but they this was unlike anything that Joseph could have imagined. It wasn't part of the dream being in charge of Egypt, just that his family was going to bow down to him. God has more in mind for you than you could ever plan, greater than you could ever even dream of. But remember, in the process from the pit to the palace, God's word will test you. It will try you and I, and you and I need to pass those tests God's way. This way we can move on to what he has for us. Knowing who we really are, who we really are in Christ, is one of the first steps to those plans that God has for us. Remember, Joseph is now a ruler, and he ends up now testing his brothers many years later when they come to Egypt to buy food. Remember, he's in charge of this plan to save the nations uh, from, from the famine. Egypt ends up selling grain to all of the the nations around it. And Joseph's in charge of that whole program. They don't recognize him. And Joseph has to find out if there's a change in them. He wasn't trying to get even. I think he was trying to be healed in his new identity because he actually tricks them. And he gives them a hard time when they come to uh, to get the grain. He needed evidence that his brothers were changed and changed in their hearts. He wanted to forgive them, but he also wanted to be able to trust them and go forward in relationship with them. He knew he changed, but he needed to know if they did. So Joseph's brothers go to the only place they can to go buy food, and that's in Egypt. And the, uh, ten of them come, actually. They leave the youngest brother, Benjamin, home because Benjamin is now, has now become the favored son of Jacob because Joseph believes, uh, jo- Jacob believes Joseph is dead. So now Benjamin, the full brother of Joseph, is now the favorite. Joseph recognizes his brothers when he sees them. You know, I picture this long line of people like trying to, trying to walk up to a, a desk or maybe a counter and they're trying to pay some money and there's people behind the desk and there's sacks of grain. They're, and remember, they're, they're in Egypt. Joseph is Egyptian and he's probably back, you know, behind all this, trying to orchestrate things, make sure everything goes well, goes smoothly because there's so many people from other countries coming to buy grain. And what would he look like? He's going to look like an Egyptian. He's been there for years. He might have a long tunic. He might be bald with just a black ponytail that we see in the movies. Who knows? He might have black eye, eye black on his face. He might seriously look totally different than what they ever remembered. It could be upwards of 20 years since they sold him into slavery. He's a changed man, Joseph. He's humble, he's generous, and he's healed in his heart. He needs to find out if they were changed as well. So what do you think one of the most painful things that he could do to test them would be? He decides that he's gonna have a conversation with them through an interpreter, because remember, they think he's Egyptian. They don't know it's Joseph yet. And he asks them to bring their youngest brother back to Egypt. He wants to see this youngest brother. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Our father would never let this happen. Joseph's gone. They don't know where he is. My father, our father thinks he's dead. There's no way he's going to let go of Benjamin and send Benjamin to Egypt with us. And in the conversation that we didn't go through all the details, there's no way that Joseph could have known as an Egyptian governor that there was a younger brother. That was the favorite So now they've got all these thoughts going on in their heads. What's going on? Joseph ends up calling them spies and giving them a really hard time. Long story short, Joseph actually wanted the whole family back in Egypt. He wanted to see them all. He wanted restoration. In order to do that, he's got to get Benjamin to Egypt. Eventually, the brothers bring Benjamin to Egypt, and Joseph plays a trick on them. He puts a silver cup in Benjamin's bag and sends them off to the father's house. And before they get there, Joseph tells his servants, hey, they stole, they stole something from the palace. You got to go get them, retrieve them. And they're going to bring them all back. Let's think back to Judah, the fourth oldest brother. Judah himself ends up being the one to stand in place of the youngest brother, Benjamin, because behold, lo and behold, the silver cup is in Benjamin's sack. So when they bring Benjamin back, when they bring all the brothers back, the servants go through all the bags, they find out where the silver cup is, and Joseph says, he's the one, he's the thief. He's gotta now stay here in Egypt with me for the rest of his life, be my slave. The brothers are terrified. This can't happen. So Judah, the fourth oldest, the one that said, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery when Joseph was in the pit. Judah steps in and says to the governor, to Joseph, how about if I stay? Because my father will surely die of heartbreak if Benjamin is not sent back home. Judah, whose name actually means praise. He is the father of the tribe of that name. That tribe that Messiah will come through, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is that Judah. He actually provides the emotional evidence that Joseph needs when he offers to exchange himself for the younger brother Benjamin. At this point, Joseph breaks down. He can't take it anymore. He starts to cry. He tells them who he is. When he reveals himself, they panic again. They become terrified again because now they remember what they did. And now they realize, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? He's in charge of Egypt. He could have them killed right there. But Joseph, the one who's already healed, Wants to bring healing to his family. He wants forgiveness to happen. He wants restoration. We know that because the story tells us that Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. You meant to do me harm, but God meant it for good. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and all your little ones. In this, they have a big family reunion, short story. They're crying, they're talking, the floodgates are open for restoration. When Judah offered himself to, to Joseph as governor, he brought healing not only to the family, but more healing to the wounds that Joseph had as well as to themselves. Joe's identity became exactly what God wanted it to be all along. He was a great ruler, a great leader with supernatural wisdom, He had revelation and understanding. He was made second to Pharaoh, a Jewish man who worshiped Jehovah, the one true God, is second to Pharaoh in the the nation of Egypt. It's amazing. That's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite. But also knowing that God tests our hearts until our promises manifest. Because being in the pit with God there's room for nothing else but you and God. And that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where, we, where things become real. If we can be real with God in the pit when things look terrible in the dark, if we know who we are in Christ, the pit becomes a place of restoration it becomes a place of redemption. It becomes a place of stepping out into your destiny. Because in the process from the pit to the palace, God will test us, he'll also redeem us. Now that's Joseph. Let's jump ahead about 400 years. You ready? We're gonna look at our last role model, which is David. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. That's a huge, huge description of a human being, a man after God's own heart. This is a man in the Old Testament. And God didn't call David that because David was more than human. He wasn't. He was just like us. He had successes and failures. But he knew something that most in the Old Testament didn't know. He knew God face-to-face like Moses. Intimately and personally, he actually knew the nature of God. He saw that God was redemptive, that he was loving, that he wanted relationship with human beings. Way before Jesus became the expression of God the Father on earth, David knew it. He knew who God was. His journey begins in the fields, in the wilderness. He's a shepherd, and he's taking care of his his father's sheep. His father's name is Jesse. When the prophet Samuel is told by God to anoint the next king of Israel. So Samuel comes and they make a feast. They anoint all of uh, Jesse and his family. Um, And Samuel asks Jesse to line up your sons because I need to see them. God's going to anoint one as king. Jesse brings them all in except for David. David. How's that for thinking that you have some sort of identity issue in your family? All the sons are brought in except for David. In First Samuel sixteen eleven, the Good News translation says this. In this way, Jesse brought seven of his sons to Samuel, and Samuel said to him, No, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Then Samuel asks, Do you have any more sons? And Jesse answered, Yeah, they're still the youngest, but he's out taking care of the sheep. Why didn't Jesse bring David in from the fields right away? There's many lines of thought, but it's enough to know that Jesse might not have thought that Samuel would even think of anointing David. He's the youngest. Maybe they just forgot about him because he was always out with the sheep. He wasn't around the house very often. We don't know really the reason, but Jesse didn't call him in for this first lineup. And we see again how much our family can impact our identity. When Samuel enters the house and sees Jesse's son, he sees Eliab. He's the oldest. He's probably the largest out of all of them. He, to Samuel, he was large, tall, good-looking. And Samuel assumed right away that this is the one that God's going to anoint. But God said, no, don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. Not what somebody looks like. Because David, by contrast, was, he was a teen. He could have been about 15 years old. He probably wasn't as tall as Eliab. He wasn't as developed, wasn't as muscular. And God put him right up against the oldest brother. Youngest brother, oldest brother. Small teenager, tall manly brother. God does that. He'll put us around other people with talents and gifts that seem more impressive to us than what we have, which forces us to deal with all the insecurities that we have. Every one of us may have or had an Iliab that we stood next to. We stand in the shadow of those people as we pursue God, but it's really in our own mind. Our true identity and our success in God will never happen until we stop comparing ourselves with other people. We have to be comfortable with who we are and confident in whose we are. We belong to the King of Kings. There's no favorites there. God loves us. If we were the only person on earth, Jesus would have gone to the cross and died for us so that we would be redeemed. The Bible tells us that God loves us with an everlasting love. There's no holds barred. He's going to give us anything we ask for. If it's in line with his will, he asks us to to ask for all of the, the gifts that Holy Spirit has for us. He wants to give us more than we can think of. So David is now anointed by Samuel as the next king in front of all of the brothers and his father Jesse. Interesting though, The Bible makes no mention of how anybody reacts to this. Maybe they were in shock. But this is where David's journey begins. He's a teen with shepherding experience and a heart at the heart of God who's going to become king. He's sent to the front lines of battle by his father to deliver lunch to his brothers. David's berated when he gets there. His identity is questioned. Who does he think he is? What's happening to your sheep back in the fields? Yet David still moves in the plan that God has for him. David recognizes the arrogance of the enemy that has come to taunt the army of Israel, Goliath. And it's good to note here that prior to killing Goliath, David actually tries on the current king, Saul, King Saul's armor which doesn't fit him at all. He can't move in it. It's not fitted to him, probably too big for him because he is a teen. And David defeats the giant who's threatening the entire army of Israel with no armor, only a stone and a slingshot. From that, we need to know that we can't be successful in our own calling if we're trying to fit into somebody else's. It's not going to happen. We cannot compare ourselves with each other. We can't try and mimic somebody in their gifting. We need to be who God called us to be. We need to find out what that is. Because no person's opinion of us matters. Not our own, not our family, not our friends. Only God's opinion matters. It's only His that can actually cause us to walk out the destiny that he's given us. So trying on the king's armor was like a foreshadowing of David's identity not being exactly what it should be. He was confident. He had that, uh, the confidence that he needed from shepherding. He was anointed by Samuel, and he was empowered by Holy Spirit. But there's still that small part of David that's humble and unassuming but maybe, not yet owning a king's position. Saul, the current king, ends up bringing David to his home, and as David is actually set over in charge of uh, the armies of Israel by Saul. He actually, lives as one of the commanders of that ar- those armies. Later on, Saul becomes jealous of David because in battle, David is very successful. He finds favor among the people, and Saul begins to persecute him. That doesn't seem like next steps for the next king of Israel to me. But David learned valuable lessons as he tended those sheep. Important lessons, those of becoming a friend of God, knowing God's nature, knowing how to worship also learning how to kill a bear and a lion, we find out. But David goes from killing public enemy number one and being a hero in the eyes of the people to a place of hatred in the eyes of King Saul, who is now jealous of him. When Saul anointed David, I'm sorry, when Samuel anointed David, he poured oil on him. That was the tradition. They poured oil to anoint people. But he poured more than oil on David at the time. He poured the honor, the favor, and the greatness that God had in store for David. And he released the the power of the Holy Spirit over David. Samuel's words confirm David as king, affirming the greatness that God already put inside David's heart. When God calls us, we've got an identity in him And it's nothing that we could ever dream of. No matter what we're called to do, it will be great. Why? Because we're something special? No. It's actually the opposite. It's because God is something special. When we come to a place of yielding to God's plan and to God, Jesus as Lord, His desires become our desires. He reveals to us the greatness that He put inside us. God will orchestrate events in your life that release honor and mold you for his plan that he's called you to before you were born, before time began. God is the great creator, and he only creates masterpieces. You are one of those masterpieces. God is still painting, sculpting, molding, whatever it is. Scholars say that David had to flee from Saul anywhere from two two to 15 years before Saul was actually killed in battle. When that happened, David, in the honoring character that he carried within him, mourns for Saul, truly mourns for him. But then the Bible says that David inquired of the Lord what to do next. David had already learned not to take the next step without an answer from God. He knew that God was the architect of his whole life. He's seeing it happen. And because of that, his journey in his destiny moved forward quickly. He asked God a question. 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, says... After this, the death of Saul, David asked the Lord, shall I go and take control of one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord answered. Which one, David asked. Hebron, said the Lord. So I think we have a map just so you can see where Israel and Judah are. Yeah, so Israel is the green kingdom. Judah is the orange David's going from the green area of, Israel, of, of that region down to the orange area. He's got to go to a city in Hebron. And if you look, Hebron is right above the word kingdom in the orange area. There was Judah, the kingdom of Judah, kingdom of Israel. They were separate. The, tribes of, of, uh, the sons of the tribes of Jacob were separated. They had two different kings. The kingdom of Judah followed David while the kingdom of Israel had another king after Saul, one of Saul's sons. But David and his men defeat that army, the army of Israel. Thank you for the map. As David battled over the years, he actually gained more honor in the sight of his men and of the people that he ruled. That honor came from the integrity and character that was built not only in the wilderness shepherding the sheep but also in fleeing from King Saul when Saul was persecuting him. Honor comes as we step into the place and identity that God calls us to, no matter where that happens to be, as we consistently move in integrity and good character. One of the goals of our church is to build a culture of honor here. If we become people of honor, we will bear much fruit for God's kingdom as we walk in integrity and character and the love of God that he's given us shed abroad in our heart for those around us. Honor is a force, I believe, that comes straight from heaven, and it brings that honor to earth. I think it can create an identity shift in those around us. Think about it. If you have children or you've been around children, we can actually change their behavior and their attitude as we affirm them, as we honor them and give them positive encouragement. In fact, anybody will rise to the occasion when they feel honor flow from the person in charge to them. So David lives in honor and gives honor everywhere it's due. In all the years that Saul persecuted him, and, and tried to find him, he would chase after him with his own armies, not once did David do harm to Saul. He was held by God's word that we find in Psalm 105, verse 15, do not touch my anointed ones. That was what David went back on any time the situation presented itself. Because it did, several times, as God, it looked as though that God was delivering Saul into the hands of David so that David could kill him and get him out of being king. But David knew that that wasn't the case. He knew that if he was going to be king, God was going to make it happen. Not anybody else, and certainly not him. Again, we go back to us wanting to be God's little helper. We always want to be the one to help God do what only God can do. David knew what Joseph knew in his heart. He knew that the word that God had given him would test him until God brought it to pass. He knew he didn't need to help himself become king. Samuel already anointed him. He knew it was going to happen because he trusted in God. He knew who he was in God. He just needed needed to figure out that he was really king. Once in Hebron in Judah, he had many battles to fight there, too, until he actually is anointed over uh, Judah and Israel. In 2 Samuel 5, on the New Living uh, Translation, it says, then when all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your flesh and we are your blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, it was you who led Israel out to war and brought Israel from battle. And the Lord told you, you would be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So the exploits of David before and after coming, becoming king end up giving the people that he was in contact with, the men that he was fighting with, the understanding of his character and of who he was, and those stories are in the books of Samuel, Chronicles, and First Kings, and they actually are really exciting, very, very fast-moving stories. They were they can be considered like soap opera stories and action adventures. So if as you're reading through your Bible, you can. Uh, pick up on those stories in those books. So what's the point of detailing David's life? David's known as an awesome king. He's referenced above all other kings in the Bible. And he's the one upon whose throne it said that Messiah would sit. He plays a major role in all the history and the prophecies of Messiah. But why include him here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Remember, God doesn't give us giftings and anoint us to prove who we are. God gives us giftings and anointing to prove who he is. Because it's not our kingdom that needs to come to earth. It's God's kingdom that needs to come to earth. Even though our assignments can reveal our identity, they're never meant to become the source of our identity. David's assignment was to rule and reign over Israel with wisdom and fairness. And he was supposed to defend and lead the people as God instructed him. But that wasn't his identity. His identity was being a man after God's own heart. His assignment was being king. If our identity is in just what we do rather than in Christ, all of the success we have will go to our head. We'll become prideful. We'll have a superior attitude to those around us thinking we did something special. As children of God, what we do, our jobs or ministries, they shouldn't be the source of our identity, just an outward expression of our identity. 2 Samuel 4 says that David was 30 years old when he became king and he ruled for 40 years. He ruled in Hebron over Judah for seven and a half years and and in Jerusalem over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. So it's possible that it took 15 years for David to become king from the time of Samuel's anointing until he became uh, king over Judah, then seven and a half more years until he was ruler over Judah and Israel. And then that's where he builds the fortress or the city of David that we know of. After building a wall around that city, David was messaged by the king of Tyre. This is the king of Phoenicia, a neighboring region. There's an odd verse in these verses that I want to read to you. 2 Samuel 5, 10 to 12 says, And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Then King Hiram of Tyre sent messengers to David along with cedar, timber, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. Verse 12 And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Verse 12, David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel. I'm like, it took him a decade after being king over that region to perceive that God had established him as king? Why did it take him that long to actually own it? It took a message from another king, from another kingdom, to make him realize that he was actually king. What do you suppose was going on in his mind? Because when I first read this, I skimmed over it. I didn't even think about that. But when I went back and read parts of it, I wondered, what was he actually thinking? Hadn't it hit him now that he was king over Israel and Judah? Made me think the greatest king in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart, a man whose throne would become the resting place for Jesus after 10 years is just now perceiving that he is king. Didn't he perceive that before? It made me realize that even David, with all of the accolades, with all of the affirmations from God and men, had a coming-to-himself moment. He has this, had the same issues that we have He had those things that confronted him that confront us, all of the emotions, all of the situations, all of the issues. Remember, it's a struggle and a test that even Jesus faced in the wilderness when Satan said, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. It's a trick of the enemy to make us focus on our inabilities, our lack of skills, our insecurities, and in our identity outside of Christ so that we don't move into that destiny or future that God has for us. But we need to come to grips with each new season in life so that we move into each new season and fulfill all that God has for us. Just like David, we need to perceive our position in our life in Christ. In our terms, we need to own it, who we are in Christ. Because if we don't, our behavior will never match up with who we really are called to be. When we perceive who we are and perceive our position in life according to God, our goals, our desires, our plans and activities will shift our perception. So two phrases I'm going to leave you with. Who we are and what we're called to. Who we are is our, our identity, what we're called to is our assignment and our purpose in life. If we're ever going to fulfill the who I'm sorry. If we're ever going to fulfill the who, then we need to settle. If we're ever going to fulfill the what, we need to settle on who the who is. And it's Satan's strategy to want to steal our identity from us. Even the great prophet Jeremiah, when God called him, he says to the Lord, God, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to Jeremiah, don't say I'm only a child. Even Jeremiah didn't get who he was. So we need to make sure that we agree with everything God says about us because God's not going to change his mind. We don't want to disagree with God. We'll be on the other side of what he has for us. Knowing who we are in Christ and knowing why we're alive will allow the spirit of God to flow through us. And sometimes God has has to stop our words to shift our identity. He will shut us up sometimes so that he can speak into our spirit man and into the actual truth of who he called us to be. Ephesians 1, 2, and this is my last verse, says in the easy-to-read version, which I didn't know there was one, (laughs) the easy-to-read version, we were the first people to trust in Christ, God's special Messiah. God wanted us to show how great he is He wanted people to praise him because of us. It's the last part of that verse. He wanted people to praise him because of us. How does that happen? When we express who we are in Christ, we're children of the king. Noble blood runs through our veins. And we have an assignment, and I believe a responsibility to God to fulfill everything that he's put inside us. Remember, you're God's masterpiece. He's still painting the picture. He's still carving the statue. We're all works in process. But we are children of a king. Our inheritance is great. When we start saying those things that God say about us, we will step in to another position in life, in our destiny in Christ. Once we get there, then we have to own it and say, yep, that's who I am. I'm a child of the king. Because great and mighty exploits will follow us as we realize who we are in Christ. And there's a whole world out there that needs a savior. The only way they're going to see Jesus sometimes is through our lives. So we need to be what God called us to be. Why don't you stand with me if you can? I just want to pray a blessing over you because we are a chosen generation. We are a room filled with priests, prophets, and kings. Father God, I just pray that everyone in this room, everybody listening to this at any other time, would step into the destiny that you've called them to be. I pray that uh, fear would be gone in the name of Jesus. We bind that fear in Jesus' name. We bind hesitation. We lose Holy Spirit boldness and Holy Spirit courage to move us into the plan and destiny of life that you have for us. We just thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you, and we expect new and higher things for us going forward. We thank you, Lord God. And we ask that you bless 2024 for this congregation and for your body around the world, Father, as your kingdom is made known. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you.